Welcome. It's the 13th of May, and you're listening to the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, a live weekly roundtable discussion during the growing season for commercial vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. We broadcast live via Zoom at 12.30 Eastern Time and 11.30 Central Time every Wednesday from the first week of May to the first week of September. A reminder to the live attendees, uh, if you're online on Zoom, you can submit questions to the Q&A box, and you can also upvote other people's questions in case uh, you think they asked it better than you did. You can vote for it. Then uh, we will answer them sort of uh, by that popularity ranking and until we get through them at the back half of the program. Um, and then at, also in the back half of the program, we'll take some questions, too. Um, Matt? Hello, everyone. You just heard from Ben Phelps from Michigan State University Extension. My name is Matt Kleinhens. Both Ben and I will serve as your co-hosts today. Mike Reinke from Michigan State University is behind the scenes working as our Zoom engineer. Kudos to him and very much, uh, very many thanks. Today we are going to talk about seedbed preparation, healthy transplants, and related topics. But given the cold weather over the weekend, uh, the, for, the forecasted weather, we're going to have this discussion with that in mind because a lot of questions came up both about the cold weather over the weekend and you may have questions about the weather to come. Today we will interview Ann Verhollen, Soil Management Specialist in Horticulture at the Ontario Ministry of Food and Rural Affairs, and Ajay Nair, with a professor of horticulture at Iowa State University. Yeah, great, great. Thank you both for agreeing to be on the show with us today. Um, I'd like to sort of get going with you, Anne, um, about some soil-related topics and seedbed prep topics. With, with the recent cold temperatures in mind, um, uh, in the last few days, over the last week, growers have been uh, responding to the forecast of cold temperatures with various things like covering plants. And uh, also, the topic of irrigating came up um, across the region, and there was a lot of chatter among um, a lot of professionals looking to give advice to growers about irrigating the soil itself um, to act as sort of a heat battery. Um, that may then radiate heat through the night and protect the foliage of plants that way. But there was some debate as to whether that was a good decision depending on the crops or the conditions. I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's complicated, right? To irrigate yeah. or not to irrigate. Um, lots of conversations around that and lots of almost things you got to think about uh, as you're making those kinds of decisions. And I think it really did come down to individual decisions based on what kind of moisture levels your soil was at, what kind of windbreaks or wind strips you had in place, what, how much residue you had, um, what moisture level your, your soils, what temperature your soils were at. There's a lot of things that go along with that. And it's, it's complicated. Soil physics was never my favorite thing. And this is essentially soil physics. So when we're talking about to irrigate or not to irrigate, we need to take a look at what's happening with the soil temperature. And that really depends on, you know, 
I think about the years that I've been working, there have been times where we've had those frost events where it comes in and it's uh, brilliant and sunny like today. And then it, you know that there's going to be a frost overnight and it's the one that's the kind of one that you can weather fairly well because soils are often moist they've had all day in the sun to warm up and and hold some of that heat and then had that warm soil to give off some some heat over the the uh, cold spell in the in the evening there's some real variations on what's the weather forecast and so coming into this last freeze timing it was pretty complicated to figure things out because our forecast, at least here in Ontario, and I don't trust our forecast at all. <laughs> and thank heavens in many ways, our forecast came out like we were supposed to have, sorry, this is Celsius. We were supposed to have minus four last night at my place and minus seven uh, closer to London. Well, we had about minus one, which wasn't bad. Still meant for crunchy soils this morning. Often they, they've been a little off on their, their, their predictions. Anyways, the critical part with this time, it's a little different because we had soils that had not had any rain. So on our lighter soils, they're starting to dry out. And we had a prediction of extended cold periods. So we were cool coming into this and can continue to get colder and have cold events, including wet snow in our case, which I really could have done without. Um, so that's a little different than just tr trying to manage one cold night. So there's some things to think about. Um, there, there's that. Uh, what is the forecast? How much sun are we likely to get? Uh, if you're going to irrigate, you want to be irrigating early in the day to allow that water in that you've put into the soil a chance to warm up and you know water takes longer to warm than soil does um, there can be some real differences with temperature i know one of the points i raised with the discussion that everybody was having online was around what's the temperature of irrig ir irrigation water we've seen here actually at harrow at the research station um, damage or at least slowed growth where tomatoes were irrigated out of a deep well with temperatures here. I'm going to switch back to Fahrenheit uh, with temperatures that were below 50 on the water. So in that case, it cooled the soil down. Depends on where you're getting your irrigation water. So you might want to know where your soil temperatures are, see what your irrigation water is like, because if you're going to drop the temperature, that becomes a bit of a complication. You've got to have enough time for the sun to actually um, for you to get the benefit from the darker color you're going to get from the moisture soil. Mm -hmm. Do you want me to keep going? Well, I wanted to make a quick comment about that, actually, and, and get your sense of this, too. A few years ago, uh, I responded to um, a hoop house grower grew tomatoes with tomatoes that looked like they'd been hit with 2,4-D. And what we ultimately discovered was that he had enough, um, he had two hoop houses adjoining each other that collected about six feet of snow and he had transplanted these tomatoes in about February. And uh, then they were watered by freezing cold water for a, a, the, until it was all gone and did some literature review and um, found some evidence that in waterlogged soils and cold waterlogged soils, plants can 
basically generate their own ethylene, which makes that sort of symptom in tomatoes. And that's what we were seeing. So yeah, water temperature certainly has, uh, has a big effect. Um, in there were some questions about cultivating, um, and there's some resources out there for fruit growers that mention cultivating uh, or not cultivating before a freeze for some of um, some of these same concepts of maintaining the soil heat battery. What would happen if someone were to cultivate? Do you think? Well, essentially, you're doing evaporative cooling. All that water, as it's evaporating from the surface, is going to cool things. It's going to make it actually colder. I played around in my garden last night just for fun. And sure enough, wherever I disturbed it, I had frost layers. Mm. Whereas if I hadn't, if I left it undisturbed, it was, we didn't have, we just had surface frost. Where I had cultivated, I actually had about that kind of depth that was solid frozen this morning. Mm. So yeah, cultivation has been known for a long time. Before a potential frost event, you don't cultivate. Okay. Now you mentioned this 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 layer that you that you found on on your in your garden soil this season, uh, this morning actually. Um, now how is how is a frozen crust like that different or similar to what what some folks call a heave, where some freezing temperatures actually cause the soil to um, to vault almost. It, it, do you know much about like when that would happen versus just a crusty layer and that kind of thing? Well, I, I think with the, that little crusty layer, we do have some almost, they're like micro ice lenses that form. So if you look at it, it is a lot fluffier. There's been expansion. And with heaving, you can get expansion way beyond what you would expect out of just straight water freezing in the expansion. Mm-hmm. And usually we, we associate heaving with perennial crops like, alfalfa and we associate it with heavier soils because um, they often have more moisture and it all comes back to the right combination of a finer textured soil usually certain amount of soil moisture and how the temperature um, allows those ice lenses to form so not surprisingly we could get a little bit of those ice lenses forming the ones that we see causing problems with with say roads or alfalfa those those are ice lenses that have formed over a long time. Mm. Uh, the ones that I know there was some concerns around some of those early planted carrots, um, onions. I did look at mine this morning. I didn't see any, any heaving with those. Um, those are the ones that those very micro ice lenses that are just happening in that top fluffier part of the, the surface. Uh, and it's, as the ice crystals, if I'm understanding it right, it's as the ice crystals form, they're actually sucking water out of the surrounding soil in order to grow that lens. And that's what causes it to expand. Sorry, I talk with my hands. This is really hard not to talk with my hands. For the live viewers, this is a plus. (laughs) So it's really going to depend how quickly that freezes how long that freeze event occurs, what kind of soil you've got. So we're going to see that ice lens formation happen more on denser soils. Um, I wouldn't expect to see as much on sandy or coarser soils with the larger macropores because they've drained. Mm-hmm. Even if you've irrigated, they've drained. I see. So the, the, um, my last question for you, and I welcome Matt to jump in on here too, is – are there any um, 
soil improvement tactics or things that you can do for your soil to improve its resilience in these times like what we had over the last few days where it comes where you have these questions about should I irrigate, should I not? Uh, are, are, is there a soil type or a soil condition that is just well buffered to this kind of thing and would reduce your fretfulness as a grower when it comes to stuff like this? Well, I'm always behind pushing the idea of using soil amendments where you can, reducing tillage where you can, um, building in cover crops into your cropping system, anything that's going to improve the overall soil health because you're going to have more resiliency. You're going to have more stable aggregates that are going to be more resistant to that kind of heaving action. You're going to have better porosity. Now, I think there's the other thing that would go along with that is higher organic matter generally shifts the color of your soil. So you're going to have that chance of heating a little bit quicker. I think there's ways of managing some of those things. I think if you're in a strip till type of system with some of the vegetables, I think that also allows you to manage the microclimate a little bit better. So I realize the bare firm soils are often the ones that are the, the warmest, but having cover crops because the trade-off right now is we're going to go from freezing temperatures to hot and dry and high winds probably so Mm. you know which is going to be worse having a little bit of frost heave or being sandblasted out so something like a strip till where you've moved the residue out of the way you've got that area that can warm and it's exposed to the sun but you've also got the protection i think you've got kind of the happy medium there and it helps to keep that soil health and resilience going all right, thanks, Ann. Ben. There's a lot to like in what uh, what Ann just said. Um, certainly, we could elaborate on the strip till portion, and I know Ajay was not asked today to comment necessarily prepared to comment on that, but I know he's an expert in that area. I have done some work in the area, and there are others that within the network, uh, the Great Lakes Vegetable Working Group, that also can comment. But I think there was a lot to like about what Ann just said in terms of enhancing the resilience of the soil for any number of different types of um, you know stresses, whether it be freezing events or dry and, 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 and uh, uh, erosion potential. And so my quick two cents would be, although we cannot change typically the fundamental sand, silt, clay ratio of our soils, we can over time through cover cropping and amendments and other practices improve um, their tilth, if you will, enhance their organic matter level. And Insofar as we reduce the tillage as well, like Ann was discussing in the strip till side of things, we we essentially uh, position ourselves to to withstand a number of different types of stresses throughout an entire season because it isn't isn't necessarily just the one event that uh, will always you know be so catastrophic. So, so Ajay, uh, Ann, and Ben have given us a lot to 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 think about going forward and, and the folks who listen to this recording after the fact will definitely be taking some notes and, and wanting to probably call back in or, or contact uh, either one of them directly as I'm sure they will with uh, after hearing your comments. And so while we focused in the first uh, 10 minutes or so about on the soil, let's pivot a little bit and, and think about the crop itself. And uh, so whatever steps a person may have taken or not, to withstand these recent uh, weather conditions, especially in the uh, with respect to the freezing issue, they might now be asking, or will be soon asking, you know, how did my crop come through? How did it how did it take these recent conditions? Uh, is all lost? What is um, you know what is it, what is the situation in the field? And 
we heard a lot from Ann about the complexity, um, soil type, uh, weather conditions, uh, pre-freeze event conditions and the like. The crop is also a complex factor. We have a very wide range of tolerance to freezing. Um, we have a very wide range of direct seeded and transplanted, raised beds, not raised beds, protected, not protected. But what are some of the basic recommendations that you would um, like to offer people with regard to assessing the condition of their crop after this recent weather event, especially especially for frost damage? Yeah. Uh, so yes, Matt, you're very correct. You know, even though Iowa is a little south than you know Canada or some other regions, which daily got into lower temperatures, like talking about like 24, 25 degree Fahrenheit, uh, we did in the northeast part of Iowa. The temperatures dipped. Uh, I would say, but 28, 29. So I did receive some emails and calls from growers who were concerned about their crops. And uh, primarily the crops uh, uh, were uh, sweet corn and green beans. There are some growers who contract and they have larger acreages uh, and they try to plant early to capitalize, especially for the sweet corn market. They can get the crop early. So they planted early and uh, and they were really concerned with, with these temperatures of 28 and 30. So as you very correctly pointed out, Matt, it is uh, a lot dependent on the type of crop or the crop itself. You know, there are some champions, champion crops for, for uh, cold stretch. You know, you talk about Brussels sprout. It can take almost 22 degree Fahrenheit, even in some cases, 20 degree Fahrenheit. Talk about kale, collards, you know, beets. There are very uh, uh, freeze tolerant crops, but crops such as... Uh, sweet corn, beans, some growers might have planted, you know, tomatoes in their high tunnels, uh, tomatoes, peppers, uh, those crops are, are uh, susceptible to the frost. So my first advice was especially to, for sweet corn growers, because that's the primary acreage here, uh, uh, was not to just pass a judgment and, and say that, you know what, oh, we had 28 degree and I go uh, to the, I went to the field, I saw blue, black, and brown. <laughs> so having that blue, black, brown, you know, it, it doesn't just tell you that, oh, everything is a toast. Uh, in some cases, the sweet corn was at that V4, V5 stage. And at that stage, the growing point is actually underneath the soil. So uh, my advice was go there, uh, take a look, take pictures so that you, you document stuff. And then uh, look at the world, the central world of the sweet corn. So if the world is healthy, it's, it's, it's growing, it's green, that's fine. The growing point is under the soil. So uh, come back after a week, you will see that the sweet corn will be coming back. So not to pass the judgment very quickly. Same thing with the beans, you know, uh, depending on the location of the plot or the field, we know about those frost pockets where the cold air sinks and can settle down. You might see a little bit more damage there. But, you know, in areas where th that didn't happen, you, you might see some uh, uh, growth later coming back. So first thing is wait, don't just pass the judgment immediately. Uh, uh, second is, uh, you know, uh, it, it is very hard to go out there and, and just quickly look at the crop and, and, and feel dejected, especially uh, what, the, what you see out there. Uh, growers can uh, uh, be assured, especially again, coming back to the type of crops, you know, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, uh, you might see some frost damage uh, on those crops, especially uh, on the leaves. You might see water circulations, uh, crops such as asparagus, which is coming out right now. That's also a major crop at this point of, uh, of the year. Uh, you might see the tips of the asparagus becoming a little limp 
and more softer, some water circulations. Yes, yeah, that is definitely non-marketable. But again, there's more asparagus coming. There is there's this more spears coming uh, from 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 the ground. So uh, that crop is is resilient. It will come back. Uh, so uh, and then you know uh, for growers, uh, it is important that uh, they. Uh, adopt strategies, especially when it comes to replanting. So the first thing, as you indicated, is assessment, going and figuring what's happening, wait for some time before we decide what to do, and then think about, okay, what, what is my strategy? Uh, this damage mat can happen on two. Uh, so in this case, we looked at crop that has emerged already, sweet corn, green beans, but some growers might have just seeded their sweet corn. Uh, and so soil temperatures are often higher as compared to the relative air temperature. So checking the seeds are, is also important, going out there, digging few seeds out. If the seeds look okay, if they are not black or they are not mushy, it will come back. Uh, th that would be my advice, you know, going out and scouting and, and not immediately coming to a conclusion. Raised some excellent points, and you know whether it's the whole the whole spectrum of uh, uh, you know less experienced grower to a, a very very experienced grower. Um, each of the points that you made, I think, are going to resonate with uh, with those folks uh, wherever they fall on that experience spectrum. And as I listened to you, I was also reminded of the difference between the apical meristem of the plant that allows it to continue to grow, and say other meristems on the plant that uh, may be affected by the recent conditions, but their loss. Uh, although it's uh, not not a pleasant thing to see, their loss doesn't necessarily translate into reduction in yield. It may slow the growth initially, but uh, ideally, if conditions rebound, so will the crop. So, your your uh, encouragement to wait and to know the crop and to assess its you know its relative sensitivity to the freeze is, is spot on. As far as transplants, folks that may not have yet transplanted, with just the small amount of time that we have left. What are some key reminders that you would offer folks that are trying to hold transplants back to get through this recent event and now what we have forecasted much of the area, some, some, uh, some rain due? What are the major steps that you would, you would encourage people to look at? Uh, uh, so uh, transplants also have their own uh, levels of tolerance to sitting in the flats for an extended amount of time. Uh, we know that tomatoes, they will definitely grow a little taller, but it's okay. You can bury more nodes of the tomatoes into the ground. Uh, but when it comes to transplanting crops such as cucurbit, for example, let's say muskmelon, squashes, uh, they are definitely more susceptible to crowding. You will see more lanky plants, more tall plants, and that's because of not enough light for them. Uh, so it, it's challenging for those transplants. So uh, uh, some of the strategies uh, which one could adopt, definitely we want to slow down the growth because if, if the window doesn't look good in the coming week or so, uh, try to... Uh, either limit the amount of nitrogen. I, I try to uh, less fertigate them. Uh, so that slows down the growth. If they were in the greenhouse, which means they were maintained at a 70, 72 degree Fahrenheit temperature, they should not be. They should have been brought outside because they can go through the fluctuation um, day and night temperature. They can acclimatize that way. Um, that, will, uh, that will slow the growth. And uh, I would also say uh, uh, when growers are getting uh, into the ground, uh, if they can, and I think most of the vegetable growers do use plastic mulch, raised bed plastic mulch. Uh, for them, they have a little bit of uh, um, cushion there because, as we all know, raised beds with black plastic mulch can increase the soil temperature. So even though the air temperature is a little cold, they can still go ahead and plant. 
because of the 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 heat which is stored uh, underneath the plastic. So uh, yes, it is challenging because you know you've already grown these transplants. Uh, at the same time, for the future, uh, in order to avoid or kind of mitigate such a situation, one could also look at uh, seeding these uh, uh, plants into bigger cell size. So instead of a 98 cell flat, if I would have used a 72 cell flat, uh, that plant, that transplant would have got a larger area to grow more nutrients and more water. So I can keep them in those flats for a little longer. Uh, if I put them in 98 or 128, there's more crowding, there is more stem elongation, uh, and that leads to more challenges. So uh, trying to make use of what has happened for the future, maybe if we can, if we think that this could happen or it, it usually does, whether you know, we have no control, but maybe uh, going back and revisiting the cell size would also be a good option. Yeah, excellent points. And I know we're, we're close to wrapping up here in this uh, brief conversation, which has been information dense, very packed. And so I very much appreciate being a part of it. Um, some other steps just come to mind as we wrap up here. Uh, some people refer to the diff method for those that have the capacity to reverse the temperature program in their, in their uh, greenhouses. They can make it warmer at night than, than it is during the day. That has shown some promise in limiting the uh, extensive growth, extension growth of the transplant. Some people like to brush the plants very gently, maybe two or three times a day. If it's a small number, exceptionally clean, like a broomstick or a very narrow gauge PVC pipe, just to create some bending of the apical meristem and the, and the stem itself. Other people accomplish that with air movement. Again, we don't want to overdo any of these. Um, a little bit goes a long way. Just a little bit of air movement will help keep the plants from uh, growing taller, they will keep them short and stocky. And of course, that's a, that's also a transplant that's uh, that's fairly well able to take the transplanting operation. But your point about um, also being willing to put them outdoors under conditions that they may not be ideal, especially if they have cover, is also a, good, a very, very good one. So I recognize that we're up against the time limit here. So I'm going to wrap it up. And I just want to say thank you again to Ajay and Anne uh, for joining us today. And thanks to Ben, obviously, for co-hosting, who, from whom you're going to hear uh, in just a moment. Uh, he'll uh, share with you the upcoming uh, topics that we'll, we will discuss this next week. This week was all about seedbed preparation, healthy transplants, and the so-called freeze edition, uh, dealing with this uh, late spring for many uh, uh, frosty, uh, frosty set of conditions. So, Ben, back to you. Thank you, Matt. Uh, thanks, Ann. Thanks, Ajay. Uh, Next, for next week, uh, we're going to be having a show called The White Thread, Early Season Weed Management. And our guests are going to be Dan Brainerd from Michigan State University uh, and Stephen Myers from Purdue University. Dan has an extensive background on mechanical cultivation tools uh, for, for vegetable production. Uh, and Stephen Myers is a weed scientist there at Purdue who has uh, a good knowledge of different herbicide options for vegetable growers. So we'll have a really nice discussion on, um, on both mechanical and chemical controls to think about early in the season. Um, it's going to be the same time, same place, uh, 1230 Eastern time, 1130 central. Uh, and if you have questions ahead of time, feel free to email those to great lakes, V E G W G at gmail.com. And that can like preload the discussion a little bit. Uh, I'd like to, uh, tell you all that this production is supported by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. Uh, 
and uh, please stick around for some live Q&A. So live Q&A, this part, it can be interesting. Uh, for those of you in the Zoom, I just want to remind you that you can put questions into the Q&A box. Uh, we've got a couple in there now and you can upvote questions that have been submitted or submit a new one. And you can also contribute by adding some comments in the chat. Uh, you can add, we're trying to keep questions in the Q&A basically. If you put a question in the chat, Mike's gonna find it, that's fine. But um, you can use the chat for any other type of commentary you'd like to add. Um, finally, if you need to speak up or we need help clarifying your question, you can raise your hand, which should be another button in your Zoom screen. And that'll tell us that you'd like to talk and we'll unmute you and we can talk like people uh, across a table from each other um, with extreme social distancing applied. And uh, finally, at, after we get through all of that, I would like to go to anyone who's on the phone. Uh, be, and the reason is you can't see what questions are already put into this little uh, Q&A box. And if you have questions, I want to make sure you hear them first. And if your question wasn't one of those, then at the end, I'm going to ask you to push star nine on your phone and that will raise your hand. And the reason we put this at the end is because apparently you cannot unraise your hand on a phone. Uh, that's what we found out. So we'll have to save that to the end so that uh, if your hand's raised, that means your question didn't come up yet and you're at the end. And so you can ask it then. And then we'll unmute you and you can talk on your phone. Uh, so let's see here. Uh, we've got a few questions lined up here. And the first one I'd like to ask to the group is that there are some growers holding transplants longer than they expected, uh, either because they planted too early due to inexperience um, or because they held off due to the recent weather. These transplants are now very root bound. Do you have any suggestions to give these stress transplants some extra support? I'll, I'll jump in real quick, but I definitely want to hear from others. Um, Root-bound transplants and the so-called transplant shock is a very well-documented phenomenon. Uh, the scientific community is very familiar with it. Uh, certainly the grower community is very familiar with it. And it seems like it's been a topic of um, research and tinkering on-farm included for decades. Um, how to avoid transplant shock and how to prevent uh, plants from becoming root-bound to begin with. Lots of different approaches to that. Some are using soil blocks. Some are using alternative um, trays and tray structures to uh, minimize the, uh, the air, the, um, the, the spiraling of the roots, um, all of which have seems to be somewhat, somewhat effective. But as far as, um, Natalie, your question about uh, suggestions of giving stress transplants some extra support, I think would begin with folks recognizing that as the soils remain cool, as they perhaps remain flooded, that the transplant shock may be prolonged. And so those plants, while they're standing upright at the moment, uh, may need some additional support. So staking and trellising, if they're a crop that, that uh, takes that, may be in order um, you know, earlier this year than, than in previous times. But uh, I'd like to hear from others on that as well. I think Matt, uh, uh, definitely we see that, especially when uh, we have these uh, transplants sitting in the tray for longer time. Um, again, tomatoes are a bit more resilient. I feel like they are benign. You can literally, you know, drop them in the hole while you are walking. You know, uh, 
But uh, I would just add another note that uh, uh, we have to be extra careful with the cucurbit crops uh, because they are very sensitive to any kind of damage or tinkering with their root system. Uh, so even though yeah, it might look uh, you know uh, very uh, bound root bound there, but uh, I'll be very careful handling those transplants because the challenge with the cucurbits is that if they uh, once they have that transplant shock, they just sit there. They don't grow for for a while. And it's dangerous that if they sit sit there because you know that that cucumber beetle is sitting on that fence post and just watching you plant your cucurbits, right? So <laughs> you don't want the cucurbits to just sit there and the cucumber beetle just coming and, and and damaging them completely. So just be extra careful while handling the cucurbit transplants. I'll add one comment there too. That there's uh, some some growers who like to transplant beets and carrots. Um, which I don't see very often, but uh, some growers just like to do it all by, by transplanting, uh, even sweet corn, uh, just one less machine to have around. So they just transplant, no direct seeding. Um, and sometimes, particularly the carrots and beets, which are tap-rooted, uh, can, be, can be an issue if they're left in the transplant tray for too long, because then their taproot's obviously quite limited as to how deep it can get before then it starts to uh, get stressed. Um, and it may not, you may not develop a very marketable uh, root crop that, that way. Um, I don't have much advice about what to do about that, except that if you have the option not to transplant and direct seed instead, that's often a better route uh, for some of those crops. Yeah, it's next to, you know, obviously um, farming is a leap of faith in so many ways. And so we can't predict when we're seeding if the transplanting is going to occur at the, at the right time. Mm -hmm. So from my point of view, um, planning for a situation like we are in now actually begins at seeding. So one would be, you know, want to remain very cognizant of their trays and the, and the cell size, like Ajay was saying earlier, is it possible to use a larger cell tray? It may take more medium, but it gives one more, uh, a larger window of opportunity to uh, remove a, a plant that isn't so root bound. Um, secondly, it may minimize or lessen that transplant shock because the root system is still very much intact and hasn't been disturbed. Are we watering and fertilizing um, the transplants while they're in the greenhouse appropriately? Are we doing our utmost best to create the healthiest possible transplant, which gives us more time if we have to delay their setting into the field or the high tunnel? And then as far as where they're set into the field or high tunnel, like Ann said earlier, you know, some alternative approaches involving strip tillage or reduced tillage approaches, um, enhancing the health of that soil, the tilth of that soil will always help. Um, and it will help buffer a lot of different stresses, whether it be flooding or cold or, or perhaps even heat. So, um, yeah, I think the planning is a more holistic approach. Uh, uh, the approach is more holistic and the planning begins uh, actually at seeding. Uh, and to build on that a little bit, knowing that we're coming out of soils that are just going to start warming again, uh, you know, we've got soils that are down below 50 again in some places. And knowing that we're coming into a week of probably some fairly heavy rain, at least through our area, I think if you've got transplants that are already stressed, you want to make sure that when you are setting them, you're setting them into the best conditions you possibly can. So that doesn't mean mudding them in. It means making sure that you've got enough uh, water going down with those transplants probably that you've got a bit of a starter going with them too. And just giving them that very best chance to get started. So 
be very cognizant of soil moisture as you're going out to plant, because I know everybody's going to be starting to get very frustrated um, and feeling fairly pushed to the edge. But if you mud it in, if you create some sidewall compaction, those already stressed roots are going to have a tough time getting out beyond the, um, the slot that they've been dropped into. Great. Uh, I'm going to move on to the next question, but I'm also going to give Natalie a question back and maybe she can respond in the chat. Uh, which transplants were they that you're seeing this problem in? And then maybe that will inform some more uh, pointed discussion later. Uh, all right. Next question is, are, are there any growth hormones that are helpful to slow the growth of, uh, of transplants ahead of an anticipated holding pattern? I can speak a little bit to that. I'm not an expert in this, but I do know of a product that is labeled for that use. Uh, it's called Sue Magic, and it is a plant growth regulator that's commonly used on bedding plants. Um, it is labeled for the for use on tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, um, and tomatillos, and also other weird stuff that are probably not grown here, uh, pepinos, ground cherries maybe, but a lot of those fruiting vegetables, uh, not the cucurbit crops. And um, you can use it. I think in my experience working with growers who grow vegetables and growers who grow plants for consumers to buy, the people who are more likely to use it are the ones who are growing plants for consumers to buy. These like greenhouse garden centers. Um, they're more likely to be using this than, than your vegetable grower. And I think I, I think it has to do with timing and expectations. I think a grower mostly just wants to get a transplant out and then let it grow. If, if you apply a plant growth regulator to it, there's going to be some delay and it's probably dependent on a number of things I'm not familiar with, but there's going to be some delay before that plant starts to grow again. And for a, a garden center, I don't think that's their primary concern. They just want to hold plants so people will buy them, but a vegetable grower wants their plants to grow. And you can you can end up in a bind there if you're using a plant growth regulator on tomatoes and peppers and you put them out and you want them to grow and they're just not. So that was my two cents. Well, Ben, you said you weren't an expert, um, but I think you nailed it, at least from my point of view. <laughs> um, no, in all seriousness, uh, with the growth regulators, plant, uh, you know, plant growth regulators, um, I think one of your, you know, you said it all in my view, but I just emphasize the setting of proper proper setting of expectations and timing being one of those, because again, we didn't necessarily know that the circumstance was going to develop, but here we find ourselves in it. So there may be a, a rush to apply something that has the temporary effect that we want, but doesn't create long-term damage, uh, long -term, you know, long-term negative. And so with plant growth regulators, um, I become concerned with that as a kind of a, uh, a, a response, um, unless it is really well demonstrated that this application, you know, will take effect very quickly. Its effect will be short-lived and it will not have a downside later down the road. So um, I guess personally, I would retreat to the other methods for reducing transplant growth as we're holding them some of which were mentioned before. And there's some excellent references out there. I think anyone who's uh, listening now or later who has trouble finding those references, feel free to contact any of the people responsible for this conversation. And I'm sure we can point you in the right direction um, on some of those methods. 
Okay, uh, great. Uh, we had another question here um, asking about if there are any fertility or watering regimes that can slow the transplant growth in the trays. We talked a little bit about this. Um, I'm, I'm getting a sense they're looking for something a little more prescriptive. Um, how far to, how far would you like to go on that? Um, yeah, I think that would be really dependent on your situation as to how much you water or withhold, but any general advice guys? It's a tough one. We have a lot of, and I feel like we have too much here, but uh, you know, I, I think Ajay and Ben um, can all comment and others too, for sure. Um, you know, with the range of media that we see used um, to grow transplants, the range of crops and varieties, and the range of environmental conditions available in the greenhouse or where the where the transplants are being grown, I think, like Ann said at the very beginning of this conversation, you know, very complex. You take all of that into account, and uh, just ballparking, I would say, you know, maybe a twenty percent reduction. Again, please ballparking. Um, maybe a 20%, 25% reduction in the amount of water being provided um, to slow down. Ajay also mentioned, you know, nitrogen and certainly, you know, Ajay, please, uh, please speak up on that. But, you know, I, I again, I want to emphasize, at least from my point of view, um, not overdoing. And I think that was one of Ajay's major points is that um, at least with assessing, you know, freeze damage, don't, don't assess too quickly what uh, what the long-term effect might be or make a re reach a judgment. In the case of withholding, uh, holding back the planting date, yes, we might be out another week um, in that neighborhood, but any steps that are taken now may not, may not have their desired effect for a number of days. Uh, so begin with the easy ones, and as the, the delay lengthens, then per perhaps the response needs to get a bit more drastic. Just to add to uh, uh, Matt's point here, uh, uh, just in general, when we grow transplants, we slowly ramp up our fertility. So we might start with 100 parts per million of nitrogen in the second week and 150. We might peak up to about 3, 350. And then after that, week four and week five, we are supposed to come down. And that's just that's, that's because to that, that uh, helps the plant to acclimatize to, to some of the weather outside. That's irrespective of what's happening outside. So in general, we do bring down the fertility uh, for these transplants. So again, if we can limit that, uh, limit the amount of fertilizer we provide uh, to slow the growth, water as mentioned, uh, uh, irrigating a little less. And of course, there is something, as, as Anne, you mentioned about the, the temperature of the water. Uh, not that we should go out and put cold water on our transplants. Uh, uh, but yeah, the, te if the temperature of the water does affect, it slows the growth if it's not at the, at the temperature, optimum temperature. Many of the greenhouses uh, now have, uh, for example, here at Iowa State, we have like the tempered water, which means the water is brought to the room temperature or a little lower than that, uh, maybe around like 50, 55. Uh, uh, but, you know, if I was, you know, I would, I would have not use tempered water if I want to use slow the growth, I would use the regular water. Uh, mm. So that you know, that slows the growth a little bit too. Okay, great. Uh, we've got one last question. It's more of a comment from a colleague of ours, uh, uh, Ron Goldie, mentioning that he's got a transplant grower who um, uses a method in which he withholds phosphorus on their greenhouse transplants um, uh, as a way to 
I assume that's on the, the conversation of holding them. Um, so he, he says they turn quite purple, uh, but they, they color up once they get transplanted. Uh, that's an interesting piece of, uh, uh, piece of um, advice there. Because uh, I think the conventional wisdom, at least for um, pre-transplanting treatment, is to apply some liquid phosphorus right at the end there. And so maybe he does that, but he's withholding while they're in the greenhouse um, to to slow down basic plant bulking. Uh, is what I'm getting there. And then uh, finally, um, at least what we have in the chat, various chat functions here. Natalie has replied that. The uh, the root-bound plants in question were tomatoes in 128-cell trays, um, which isn't too uncommon. Uh, it is pretty small, though, for a, for a new grower. I think that's a little small. That seems to me like you'd have to pot those up at some point, and that's just a lot of work. But what do you guys think? Does that change your advice at all on, on handling the root-boundness of, of that plant? I only know that I uh, I work with some uh, someone in the grower community that I work with routinely uh, pot before planting. Um, they're working with a smaller number of plants than you know than some are, and so their their basic plan as they enter every season is to use flats and then go to a larger cell size small pot and then and then to transplant, especially if they happen to be high tunnel growers. So. Um, you know, it's that, a good way to save space. It's on. a good way to save space initially. And, it's, and it certainly gets to Ajay's point that earlier on that, um, and, you know, using a larger cell size essentially gives the plant obviously more room to explore, more volume to explore before it starts to become crowded. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it alters the fundamental kind of uh, concepts behind the recommendations, but uh, maybe speaks to them in a different way. Yeah, I think this grower may have missed a step. Um, the, for the folks who do pot up, the reason they do it is they can put as many seeds as they can in a small space in a tight tray with little cells, because then they can put more into this. People who homemade these things, they're like old display cases from grocery stores and stuff, and they put a heat lamp in it. And it is a small thing, and it just germinates the seeds. And then they get the little plants up. Then they see that there's always going to be misses. There's going to be ones that don't germinate. Uh, and so then you take out the ones that did and put it into like a 72 or a 50 cell tray or a 98 or something. But now you have 100% fill and there's no wasted space. And the, the germination chamber is, um, isn't as crowded then. Because if you put a bunch of 50 cell trays in the germination chamber, then you're not germinating as many plants as you could in that space. Um, so it almost feels like they started the idea of that they were going to pot up and then, and then perhaps didn't, um, or they just read half of some advice about what, you, what cell size they should be using and maybe f didn't read the extra part about how you might pot up after that. Uh, Cause on 128 cell trays, they'd have to see it a little closer to when they want to transplant if they intend not to pot it up. The key in all that process is what ben, uh, I'm sorry, what Ajay mentioned earlier. Um, I'm trying to do my best to channel him <laughs> is, uh, you know, be very mindful of the crop that you're working with and it's, and it's relative sensitivity to root disturbance, especially before transplanting and at transplanting. Right. So in tomatoes, we have, uh, and, uh, we have a crop that's relatively resilient, um, especially farther down that spectrum than say many of the cucurbits are. So that repotting step, uh, as, as Ben was just describing, 
you know, might be particularly relevant for a tomato grower, but it may not add a whole lot to somebody who's growing a cucurbit or another another crop that's very sensitive to root disturbance, um, you know, at, especially at the youngest age of the plants. And I think this brings back uh, the focus uh, on Anne's point there, that uh, if they have a good soil to transplant this into, uh, that might uh, take off some of the you know the negative things that happen because of this root bounding. So again, the plot or the field where they are planting, if the soil is you know well managed, high organic matter, you know uh, uh, well taken care of, good porosity, uh, the, the, this hopefully this was a small bump. This this root bound thing was a small hump, and then uh, in the field they will grow normally. And working with tomatoes is probably a great place for them to start if they're new growers. I'm used to commercial processing crops where they're in 288 flats. Yeah. And it's quite common to hold them, have them turn purple because you've been withholding a lot of phosphorus. Use a good starter. Um, Actually, there's been times where they've actually had to clip them to keep the size down so they'll go through the transplanter. Tomatoes are wonderfully resilient. Ajay raises a great point. Much of what we may know about root-boundedness and transplant shock might have been related, impacted by or influenced by the soils into which the plants were put <laughs> during the experiments. So if, uh, you know, the plant transplants were grown in a certain way, had all these, uh, you know, permutations of container, the cell size, cell shape, rooting medium, irrigation fertility, and the like, and then people doing excellent work looking at the root growth afterward, they may have been put into a soil that was, quote, substandard, you know, suboptimal, uh, which was contributing to the root, uh, to the to the transplant shock. So um, certainly the experienced growers uh, among us are, uh, can appreciate that in a, in a big, big way. Um, it begins at seeding. It goes all the way through, you know, the crop establishment for sure. And uh, some of that establishment phase is what you've done in the off year or what you've done in that, uh, you know, late fall, uh, early spring period before, before plants planting. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Ajay, and, and Anne, that it might have as much to do with the soil conditions as it was the growing conditions of the transplant. Excellent. Uh, so we've cleared the docket on, on those questions that have come in. And now I'd like to just open it up to anyone who is on the phone. If, you're, if, you, if you had a question that has not come up yet and you'd like to ask it, you can push star nine now and it will, on our screens, it'll show that you've raised your hand and then we can unmute you. Give you just a few seconds here to uh, consider that. Okay. Well, I, uh, very, I very much appreciate uh, your availability today and Ajay, Matt, uh, and Mike for, for putting this on. And I think we had a great discussion and, um, and I hope you have a good rest of the week. Okay. Ben, Matt and Anne, thank you. It was a, it was a pleasure to uh, uh, chat with you and, and of course learn from you all as well. So you all have a nice day as well. Thank you, Ajay. Thank you, Anne. Signing off. Thank you.